All right, let me invite you to take your Bible, go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to pick up in verse 12, and we are now into, in, in the gospel of Mark, into Jesus' last week uh, on earth, or b- before, he is, uh, before he's crucified, arrested, crucified, and then of course resurrected three days later. Uh, last week we looked at the triumphal entry, Jesus entering the, the city of Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, which, which means uh, Lord save us. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People laying down uh, their clothes and palm branches on the ground as he rides into town on a donkey. Really, this what we might say was a royal welcome for the uh, for the Savior. And and uh, then he he goes into town and and arrives at the temple. And we're told that he uh, looked around. It says at the the end of verse 11, looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, the, the idea we were given there is that Jesus went and uh, not, not just observed, but really inspected the temple. And, and as we understand that Jesus is uh, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, it was, it was God inspecting this place of worship, and then he retreats with his disciples out to a town called Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. So now in our passage this morning, uh, we'll begin in, in verse 12, and we're told it's the next day. So this would be Monday uh, morning when, when this passage begins, with Jesus being arrested this coming Thursday night as, as we approach this week. Now we still have a couple of months but before we get there, but uh, that, that's what's happening. So everything from now until the end of this series in, in chapter 16 all happens in the last week of Jesus's earthly life before he is uh, arrested and crucified, right? And, but in, before us this morning, we have a couple of interesting passages. Um, the, in the first part of this, we're going to see the only time that Jesus um, performs what we might call a cursing miracle, okay? Where, where Jesus says, uh, this thing is going to die, and, and it dies. It's the only time throughout his, his ministry. All the other miracles that he performs were either signs that, that were pointing directly to him being the Messiah. You might think of uh, like uh, him turning the water into wine in uh, John chapter 2, or healing miracles, restoring people back to health in order to uh, illustrate what uh, the gospel does in the life of, of a person, that it, that it restores us to uh, relationship with Christ. It restores us to the way God designed life to be. This morning, we're going to see the only time that Jesus uh, actively curses something in his ministry and then another example where, where we see Jesus, may, maybe for, for the first time, is, his actions are described as being physically angry um, when he goes to the temple and turns over the tables, all right? And so uh, two very unique stories, and yet we're going to see this morning how they show us the Savior who purifies. So if you will, stand with me and let's read... Uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 12, and we'll go through verse 25. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. 
Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, because you pray and ask for, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to gather together and open up your word. And I pray this morning as we see these, uh, these two stories that you would show us how Jesus wants to purify his people, what he asks of us in worship. There would be people who are constantly and, and, and more and more frequently walking in the truth, walking in purity. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You have a seat. Now, here's our big idea for the morning, and this is kind of the, the overall theme that will carry us through these, these two stories that, that we have, and it's simply this. Jesus desires true, authentic worship that is grounded in faith. Right? Jesus desires true, authentic worship that is grounded in faith. Now, as I said, we, we have a couple of, of pictures here of Jesus that we don't normally see, right? We see him, uh, we see him actually uttering a curse uh, on this fig tree, which is not something we're, we're used to, to Jesus doing. Then we see him getting upset and, and going into the temple and, and turning over tables. And, and, and we, we might look at these from a, maybe from a, uh, uh, certainly the perspective of, American Christianity, where we've, we've maybe been taught that Jesus is fundamentally nice, and, and look at this and say, well, now hang on. This, this isn't, this isn't the, the let little children come to me, Jesus, right? This is, this is something else. Um, but what we're, what we're going to see is, uh, we'll have a little bit of context here to see why uh, what Jesus did was not only entirely appropriate, but uh, certainly uh, setting up what God is getting ready to do and setting up um, a big teaching moment for Jesus with his disciples. All right, the first thing that we're going to see when it comes to the fig tree is the danger of hypocrisy. 
Well, you get that from a tree? Well, yes, and here's why, okay? Because we're told the next day they went out from Bethany, and he was hungry. So this is early Monday morning. They're making the two-mile trip back into Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry. We're told he comes upon a fig tree in the distance with leaves, and he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, we know Passover, which is uh, the, the coming weekend when, when Jesus will be crucified. That happens over Passover weekend. That happens in the spring. Those dates coincide with our celebration of Easter. And so this year, that happens on, I believe it's April uh, 6th, uh, April 5th or 6th. It's the first Sunday in April this year. So early spring, this happens. Now, uh, figs didn't appear on fig trees until uh, late spring, early summer, maybe more like our May and June. So Jesus comes up to this tree in a time when, when it's not supposed to produce figs. And he doesn't find any figs on it, and he seems astonished. Now, I learned this this week. I didn't know a whole lot about fig trees before this week, believe it or not. Um, but in, in reading and researching a little bit, even before uh, the, the figs would fully form on a fig tree, in the spring, when the leaves came on the tree, there would be little buds that would eventually turn into figs, and those buds were typically edible. So Jesus comes up to this tree expecting there to be something. It looks really good. It's got leaves. It's pretty. And that's usually a promising sign that there's at least these, these buds he could pull off and, and maybe grab a handful and snack on as he's going down the road. But he gets up to the tree and there's nothing but leaves on the tree. See, it looked good on the outside, but that look was deceptive. There was no tree, and there was no fruit on that tree whatsoever. In response, Jesus says in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And we're told at the end of verse 14, the disciples heard it. So, so the disciples witness all this. Now, Especially as we make our way to the cross, it's, it's important to put this into some context. Because what we see Jesus echoing here are some, uh, some passages, some verses from the Old Testament prophets. One from Jeremiah, one from Micah. The first is Jeremiah 8.13. Look at this. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. And then Micah 7, 1. How sad for me, for I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. And you see here this, this longing, um, as, as the prophets would, would say, that they're longing for some sort of fruit uh, to be found in the lives of the people that they're ministering to, the people that they're prophesying to. 
the people there are constantly declaring the word of the Lord too. And they're, and they're saying they, they see nothing. They're, they're like people that are, that are constantly going up to trees, looking for fruit, and constantly being disappointed. Jesus, as he begins this last week of his earthly life and ministry, comes up to a tree expecting to find fruit and finds none. Much like the reception that he'll receive from the people as the week wears on. So he curses this tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And I found this really interesting. There, there have been some commentators through the centuries that have uh, almost made Jesus seem, seem like an angry child when, when uh, they get to this passage and say, how this seems so out of character for this Messiah. Um, however, we, we need to also point that he's not, he, he probably was angry that he didn't find anything on this tree. After all, we're told he was hungry. He was looking for something to eat, something to snack on while they walk. He's probably disappointed and, and angry about that. But he's also making a spiritual point to his disciples. And that's simply this. Not everything and not everyone who looks the part on the outside is a true follower and worshiper of Christ. There are imposters. And I think he's warning them He's warning his disciples as they begin this week that things are not always as they seem. Now, now keep in mind, they're probably on a spiritual high. They're probably still uh, reveling in the, in the sights that they saw on Sunday as Jesus came into the, into the city and people were rejoicing and shouting. And I think here Jesus is, is explaining to them that what they witnessed the day before, not on the part of everyone, but on some, was not true worship. And as I mentioned last week, it's, it's very possible that some of those who are shouting Hosanna on Sunday will shout crucify on Friday morning. Jesus illustrated this uh, again in, in Matthew 23. Look at this passage here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, here's, here's the big thing for us. Um, when it comes to following Christ, what we do on the outside is not the thing that determines our relationship with Christ. And one of my fears is that through the years, we've created this cultural Christianity where people go to church and sing the songs and can speak the language but have no relationship with Christ and whose testimony of following Christ is nothing more than um, mom and dad took me to church when I was a kid and now I come because it's what I've always done. It's part of my weekly routine. And there's never been a transformative moment where they've repented of sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. Instead, we just go through the motions. 
And this is going to be illustrated by, by this next story, by the way. So um, at the end of the, of the passage, and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, as we go on this morning, but in verse 20, the next morning, so Tuesday morning, Jesus and the disciples are again on their way back to Jerusalem, and they pass this same fig tree, and it was uh, withered from the roots up. What Jesus pronounced is what happened. And suddenly the inward state of this tree is exposed in its outward appearance. That it's, it was useless. It was not serving the purpose for which it was created. And now that's, that's revealed because it's withered. Again, we'll get to that part in, in the moment. But it's, it's important to note that what Jesus pronounced is exactly what, what happened. Verse 15, we're going to see this, uh, this, the displeasure of false worship. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he went out into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, really quickly, once again, this is not just Jesus throwing like some temper tantrum. We need to understand why he's so upset by what he's seeing. Remember, uh, as we looked at earlier this morning, in verse 11, in chapter 11, um, the day before, Sunday evening, Jesus inspected the temple. So he saw what was going on. He comes back on Monday and is even more enraged by what he sees and begins flipping over the temple. And what, what he found when he showed up was people buying and selling, almost, you could say, turning the temple into the, this place that was supposed to be a place of worship into a market, into a flea market. But that's not all. Because we're told he flipped over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. So certainly maybe there were some people just buying and selling that had set up some, some booths and maybe almost like a, like a craft fair. They're, they're selling their goods in, in, the, in the temple and Jesus throws those out. But he, but he seems to have a, a special anger for the, the people who were called money changers and those in chairs selling doves, in the chairs of those selling doves. So um, let's start with the, with the money changers. Um, foreign currency was not allowed in the temple. Only Jewish currency would have been allowed in the temple. So you had these money changers who would exchange foreign currency for Jewish money that, that they could then use in the temple. And we'll talk about why they needed it in, in just a second. But what happened is these money changers weren't just exchanging one for one. They were charging fees, sometimes outrageous fees, to do so. So they were lining their own pockets by taking advantage of foreigners who had come to worship God. And this enrages Jesus. 
And we're told he also uh, flipped over the chairs of those selling doves. The Old Testament prescribed what kind of animals could be used in, to, to offer sacrifices as worship. They had to be unblemished. And uh, the, the reason here, some people would bring lambs, year-old lambs, uh, unblemished, meaning a, a perfect animal. But for the poor who couldn't afford a lamb, they were able to offer doves. Now, in order to use an animal in the temple, it had to be certified by religious leaders. It had, it had, it had to be checked off. This, this is an acceptable animal. For many people, the only way they could get an acceptable animal would be go, to go to the temple and purchase one that had already been certified. In the case of poor individuals, they would go and purchase a pair of doves. Now, you had people exchanging foreign money because uh, they, they didn't accept foreign currency in the temple. And then you had people selling doves and, and what we and selling other animals. And, and one of the things that we know from history is that uh, just as the money changers would charge a really high rate to exchange currency, so also those who are selling these animals to be used in sacrifice would mark up the animals within the temple considerably. Some estimate as much as 16 times their actual value. Let me put that into perspective. If a pair of doves was normally sold for $10, you go to the temple and it's $160. That's worse than a, at a ballpark, right? Getting a, getting a $7 soda. And I think Mark specifically mentions doves in verse 15 because those would have been the sacrifices that the poorest of individuals and families would offer. And so if you're a poor foreigner, you're being charged a high rate to exchange your money into Jewish currency, and then you're being overcharged for these animals to be able to offer as sacrifices. They are the religious leaders, those who are supposed to be encouraging people to worship God were creating hindrances to worship. And Jesus takes very seriously the worship of his people. And I would say he takes very seriously the hindrance of the ability to worship. In fact, he says in, in verse 17, my house will be called a house of prayer. And Mark alone adds this next phrase. Mark is the only gospel writer that includes these three words, for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Okay, keep in mind that that those who were traveling from other nations uh, to come and worship were, were at an even bigger disadvantage than even the poor in Jerusalem, even poor Jews would have been. Now, this, this is important, and particularly with Mark, who is writing to a Gentile audience, meaning non-Jews, this is, this is an important part for him to point out. That the, the temple, God's house, 
was to be a place of worship for all nations. Now the Jews saw the Messiah, saw Jesus, those who trusted in him, and certainly those who were waiting the Messiah saw the Messiah specifically as a Jewish Messiah. And yet as we've seen, Jesus throughout his earthly ministry uh, spent at least one journey traveling outside the, the borders of Judea to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles during his earthly ministry, perhaps as a foreshadowing of what Paul will eventually do in the book of Acts as the apostle to the Gentiles, carrying the message of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, to those outside the traditional family of God. I found this quote from John Piper, and I, I thought it was really good. And uh, rather than summarizing it, I just decided to, to copy it and, and read it, because this, this frames exactly what's going on here. This is what John Piper writes about this. He says, over and over, Jesus shows that the people of God will no longer be defined in an ethnic way. The new people that he is calling into existence is defined not by race or ethnicity or political ties, but by producing the fruit of the kingdom. This will mean a new global family made up of believers in Christ from every ethnic group on the planet. And it will mean that those who love that vision will work toward local manifestations of, the eth of that ethnic diversity. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism, globally and locally. Not color, but faith in Christ is the mark of the kingdom. But it is a mighty long journey, and the price is high. Jesus was on the Calvary Road every step of the way. He knew what it would finally cost him. It would cost him his life, but his heart was in it to the end. When we fast forward to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, what we see is that we're told people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered at the throne worshiping Almighty God. In Mark 11, what we saw were people hindering those from outside coming into worship. And Jesus making it known in very clear terms by flipping tables and flipping chairs that that would not be, that was not the way things would be in his kingdom. Everyone who would repent of sins and trust in Jesus is welcome no matter race, no matter ethnicity, no matter background. That invitation is open to all. And then finally, we see the dynamic of faith. As, as I've already mentioned in, in verse 20, the disciples the next day, Tuesday, they're coming back and, um, and they see the, the fig tree withered. And they're astonished because they remember hearing Jesus curse the fig tree. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, almost like Jesus is going to be surprised that, that this happened. Isn't it interesting? Look, look at verse 22. This is a very interesting reply that Jesus gives to Peter. He, he, he doesn't scold him as if, uh, Peter, you, you should have, believed that. He just simply replies with this, have faith in God. 
Look at this passage here, verse 23. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, we... We shift here. You, you, can, you, you probably sense that. From, from Jesus driving out people in the temple to this next day, teaching his disciples about faith. And, and kind of some, we might say, various teachings on, on faith. The, the famous, uh, if you have enough faith, you can... Um, this is where the... Uh, in, in some other uh, iterations, you can, you can say to the mountain... Uh, you can move mountains, right? He says here in verse 23, and some, some confusing maybe to, to us things about faith that, that I would say have been ripped out of context and used to further people's agendas about what it means to, to have faith. And um, I think it's important for us, though, to remember that, that Jesus is teaching about faith Three days, less than three days, Tuesday morning here, before he's arrested on Thursday night. And over these next 72 hours, the disciples' faith is going to be tested like they have never experienced before. But there's a clarification that we need to make about faith. Because oftentimes, we'll, we'll tell someone, just have faith. You, you just need to have more faith. In fact, there's a, there's a whole movement that's popular in the United States and gaining momentum around the world called the Word of Faith movement that, that essentially says if you just have enough faith, you can do whatever. If you have enough faith, you won't get sick. The problem with that is I think oftentimes it's presented more as faith in faith itself than faith in God. And I like what uh, Adrian Rogers said about faith. In faith. He said, faith in faith is just positive thinking. But faith in Jesus is salvation. So it's not just, oh, I have faith that everything's going to turn out all right. I, I, I have, maybe we heard this uh, a year ago now, in, in mid-March last year. Oh, you know, I just, I have faith that all this is going to go away. Fast forward a year. I just, you know, if, if I just have enough faith, that means that, you know, I just, I just need to keep my faith strong and I'll avoid this virus. Well, can I tell you about some of the strongest people of faith that I know that have wrestled with this virus? See, the point of faith is not, I just need more of it. The point of faith is whatever I have, even if you remember Jesus saying, a mustard seed of faith placed in the right object placed in the person of Jesus Christ is the thing that makes the difference. Because at the end of the day, it's not the amount of faith that you have that matters. It's the power of the one whom you've placed your faith in that matters. We get so caught up, I think, on uh, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea... 
verse 24, Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received, it will be yours. Lord, I declare I have a million dollars. That hasn't worked yet, by the way. I don't know of anyone that that's worked for. I know a lot of people that have placed their faith in a fake preacher that told them if they would just send a seed gift that they would be blessed abundantly and have been, you know, a lot of people that have bought into that lie. I think the biggest command about faith in this passage is found at the end. And it's not about moving mountains and it's not about getting whatever you, you ask for. But look at this. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Could it be that the act of forgiveness is one of the greatest examples of faith that we have as people? Because that says, because forgiving someone says, I'm not going to hold against you what I've asked God to forgive me from. See, Faith in God means we follow his commands, and he's commanded us to forgive others. He's commanded us to forgive others as he's forgiven us. And one of the true marks of faith is that forgiven people are forgiving people. Could it be that through lack of forgiveness, we act like, in, in some part, like the money changers, seeking to keep people from the grace of God? Because we might at times say, well, they don't deserve it, and in, in, in that case, you would be absolutely right. Of course, the, the flip side of that is, neither do I, neither do you what grace is all about. We remove obstacles that would keep people from coming to faith in Christ. So here's the big idea again. Jesus desires true, authentic worship that is grounded in faith. Not faith in faith. Not faith in people. Faith in God. That He is who He says He is that he forgives when we ask him, that he reconciles us to Christ when we repent of sins and trust in Jesus. And this is what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4. And she was so concerned about worship and trying to deflect, and he was bringing up, uh, he, he brought up her past, and she didn't like that very much, and so she tried to get into a theological debate. And, and this, is, this is what Jesus said to her, simply this. An hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In truth, according to God's word, we can't, we can't just come in and say, well, you know, when, when I worship God, I, I, feel, I feel more... I feel more centered if I, you know, if I kind of practice this meditation or 
I met one lady who said, well, I'm a Christian, but I use uh, Buddhism to center myself. Not exactly sure what that means. No, we're not just given carte blanche to say, you know, you just worship however. No, we worship in truth. We also worship in spirit. Meaning, I think, that we're actively engaged in worshiping Jesus. By the way, when we say worship here, that's not just music. That's part of it. I remember one guy at the church that I grew up in, no, no matter what we were singing, he just had this angry look on his face all the time. I thought it was just because he didn't like the, as, as he called them, the ditties, the, the, the new worship choruses. Uh, but I looked over one day, and we were singing Blessed Assurance, and he was, Blessed Assurance. <laughs> I was not blessed nor assured. Um, and I don't think he was either. Uh, right? No, no, we worship in spirit engaged, but also according to the truth of God's Word. We do that through faith, and we invite others to come along with us. Maybe you're here, and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and and if that's the case, let me tell you that that Jesus loves to remove barriers to, to coming to follow Him. Matter of fact, and as we get through this Gospel as we as we move closer to the the crucif- or as we get on the the other side of the crucifixion, what you'll see is the biggest barrier between God and man, the temple that separated the holiest place, the holy of holies, from everywhere else, was literally ripped into, removing the separation. Paul would say, "Now in Christ Jesus, those who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." The invitation to repent of sins and trust in Jesus is open for all. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you can do that today by praying something like this. God, I am a sinner, and I want to be forgiven. I believe Jesus Christ, your son, died for my sins and is alive right now. I turn away from my sin and now confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and receive him into my life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to control my life, and I thank you for giving me eternal life. There's a number there. Certainly, if you're worshiping with us online, you can call that number, text that number, let us know that you want to uh, know what it means to trust Christ. If you're here in the room with us and you've never taken that step to repent of sins and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, pray today's the day. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, My question for us today is simply this. Are, first of all, are you exhibiting the fruit in keeping with repentance? Or like a tree that looks good on the outside but has nothing of substance? Are you allowing Jesus to do a work in you so that you may bear fruit for the kingdom of God? And secondly, I would say this, are you making it easy or difficult for folks to come into the kingdom of God based on your life? Let's be people, let's let's make First Baptist Church a place where it's easy. (laughs) Repenting of sins and trusting in Jesus is hard enough. We don't need to make it more difficult. Are we 
Are we presenting the gospel? Are we encouraging people to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the wonderful opportunity to, to open up your word and to, to be challenged. I was certainly challenged this week as I studied this passage and had to ask questions of myself. Where, where, where are those areas where I should be bearing fruit and I'm not? Where are areas of my life where perhaps I'm hindering others from coming to faith in Christ? So in those areas of our lives, I, I pray you would flip over tables, flip over chairs, drive out what needs to be driven out so that we might not be a hindrance to people who desperately need to hear the gospel message. And I pray all of us that are, that are followers of Christ, that claim the name of Jesus, would bear fruit. You would shape us. You would mold us in the image of Christ. You would make us not like whitewashed tombs, not like a, a tree that looks good on the outside, but that we would truly, honestly bear fruit. that others might see that and come to faith in Christ Jesus. Walk with us. Forgive us when we fail. Mold us into the people you want us to be. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.